Better Call Saul. Season 2, Episode 5 is over, but we are just getting started here on the Better Call Saul. Season 2, Episode 5, Rebecca is over, but we are just getting started here on the Better Call Saul post-show recap. And now, here are the two guys with a bad case of GERD. I'm Rob Sestrino. Here's Antonio Mazzaro. Antonio, how are you? Oh, Rob, my GERD. Oh, this is... T- I. You know, I took a big risk at lunch, and it's really not paying off, Rob. I <laughs> Should didn't realize- not have gone for those onion rings yeah i didn't realize you were a fellow girder this is great we should build a building together <laughs> yeah oh the gird gird yes. gird so this, good this it gird so good come on baby let it gird so good this uh there of, of all the things he could have I, I expected an ibs reference out of uh jimmy at that moment but he goes for gird so all right yes he's going for the gird and it was an interesting night on better call saul seemed like uh lots of fun stuff going on but then What we did not see really got blindsided because last week we were expecting maybe somebody to show up after we found out that it was just going to be uh, Tuco was going to be the person that we were going to be going after from Nacho. But here comes Hector Salamanca here at the end of the episode. And uh, interesting to see where this is all going to go for Mike. Yeah, we talked last week about how. The problem with shooting someone like Tuco is if you shoot him, a bunch of other Salamancas are going to show up. But it turns out if you let him beat you up, the same thing happens, Rob. Yeah. So very fun stuff to talk through tonight. Antonio, how have you been? I've been I've been better, Rob. I've been better. I've been I've just been waiting patiently for the House of Cards recaps to come out here. <laughs> I post show recaps day by day by day by day. I'm just waiting. So other than that, bidet. I've been doing really good day by day. Yes. <laughs> that is yeah. a. <laughs> shout out, shout out to Wet Hot American Summer. Yeah, that is, uh, that's all. Other than that, I've been good. How about you, Rob? Yeah, very good. Lots of podcasts coming up. Uh, Antonio and I recently even discussed another lawyer show, The People versus O.J. Simpson, this weekend on Post Show Recaps. But we are back today to talk about Better Call Saul. And officially, Antonio, happy halfway through season two for Better Call Saul. Oh, my gosh. I didn't even get you a present, Rob. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's Okay. <laughs> that's okay what is the halfway what is the halfway gift for better call Saul? is it like mm, a bell should we get a bell yeah well hector's oh, back hector's back baby ding 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 yeah yes he just said a whole sentence it turns out yeah <laughs> so at least um if you want to make a dinner uh maybe you have that soy ginger marinade ready to go the soyaki, yeah, I'm, I've got the soy ginger marinade ready to rock. We, it's a recipe that we had in Florence. If you'll recall, Rob, it's fantastic. We're ready to go. Okay. Of course, uh, you could subscribe to our Better Call Saul podcast feed. Go to postshowrecaps.com slash BCS iTunes. Antonio, I thought this was an interesting episode on a number of levels tonight. Uh, interesting, though, episode is called Rebecca. We only got the one scene in the episode where we got to see Chuck's wife, Rebecca, and this scene where Jimmy comes over to visit. What did you think was the ultimate significance of this in the episode, which ultimately ends up being the title of this episode, Rebecca? It's a good question. The, uh, we talked a little bit about how this, there may be something kind of more to the story with Chuck's sheet music. That was something that kind of popped up on the story sync. It's popped up on the official breaking or the Better Call Saul Insider podcast where that that sheet music maybe played a bigger role. And we actually talked last week about what may have led to Chuck's kind of the onset of his condition. Uh, Maybe it was something Jimmy did. Maybe it was something else. And here we see Chuck was a happily married man, Rob. I think this is the first confirmation we've ever had of that. We see him with the wedding ring on. Mm -hmm. uh, They're cooking a nice dinner together. 
Chuck was married. I've got some thoughts on the title. Does it does the title mean anything to you uh, in general before I get into mine? No, I thought that that was just odd that they opened the episode there. They titled the episode there, but then ultimately things didn't come back around to like bring her back or a second scene with her. So I was a little surprised that that's what they ultimately named the episode. Well, I'm uh, sitting in my room here that I podcast from and I've got a bunch of movie posters on the wall. This is not a joke. And I'm actually looking at one from an Alfred Hitchcock movie from 1940, uh, which is called Rebecca, a hmm. very famous Hitchcock movie. I believe it was kind of his first American film. Uh, it is a film about a man who had an ex-wife who died, uh, and they lived in this great, wonderful house together, and all these fantastic things happened in their relationship, and they just had it perfect. Uh, but then she died, and we don't really know what the true story of it was. And this man and his grief kind of goes off and finds a new bride and brings her back to the house. And the house isn't really literally haunted by the ghost of Rebecca, but Rebecca's ghost is in every single corner of the house. All of the people who work in the house prefer Rebecca. She was this wonderful woman. What happened? This is this horrible thing. All of these things where Rebecca was better than this other woman. And it's a very famous novel uh, by Daphne du Maurier that uh, Hitchcock adapted. And it was really about being haunted by this woman, Rebecca, uh, in a psychological sense, not a uh, paranormal sense. Uh, and how her presence really affected all of these other relationships that came after. So it is kind of an interesting thing. I, I can't believe that this episode would be titled that and, and have that kind of premise and not be a direct connection to that Hitchcock film. That's a really interesting observation. Now, who would be the new woman that would be replacing Rebecca? Because the only other woman that we see, and of course that Chuck has a very lengthy conversation with here in this episode, is Kim. Yeah, uh, it's a good question. Uh, it's it's not it's not 100%, and I don't want to spoil the film, Rebecca, of how it all plays out. I would I would recommend it for sure. But what I would say is, I don't know about Kim, that we do have a very interesting kind of Chuck and Kim. Should we call it Chim? Shim? Shim Shimini? Should we have a Shim relationship going on here? Uh, maybe a cluck? I don't know. What do you want to call it? But, uh, but that's happening. Like Chuck and Kim are talking. We get a Chuck and Kim scene. Uh, it is very interesting because Chuck is not being a true bro to Jimmy at all in this episode. He is very actively trying to burn Jimmy to Kim uh, and ruin that relationship that he knows is there. To what end? It might just be to upset Jimmy. Maybe Chuck has other intentions. Those have not come out to the surface at all yet. And I wouldn't suggest that we're headed there. Yeah, so not only uh, is Chuck kind of making nice with Kim, but we saw this extended flashback at the beginning of the episode where Jimmy, for the first time he's meeting Chuck's wife, Rebecca, is making really nice with Rebecca, um, so seemingly to Chuck's chagrin. What did you make of that scene, Rob, with, with Chuck and Rebecca and Jimmy, that sort of triangle, that, that loose triangle that was forming there? Well, you had in the beginning of the episode, Chuck is going to great lengths to set up, look, my brother is coming over. I mean, you're going to hate him. He's terrible. He's the worst. He's so annoying. Thank you for doing this. You're the best for dealing with him because he's just so intolerable. He's going to drive you crazy. Thanks so much. I really, really appreciate that. And then he comes over and he's being, you know, vintage Jimmy, but Rebecca doesn't seem like she's hating it. She actually seems like, oh, this is pretty fun. He's telling all these lawyer jokes. And I'm sorry, Antonio, that you had to hear all these lawyer jokes tonight. Oh, man, such pain. Yeah. But then 
she's telling her own lawyer jokes. Yeah. And she never does the Carol Burnett ear pulling signal to say, hey, get this guy out of here. Safe word, safe word. Get Jimmy out. Yeah, she never does. She she really sort of, you know, gets into it. And, you know, if you think about Chuck and, and his wife, they seem like very nice people, but they seem a little, I don't know, stuffed shirt. Maybe that's the right word. They just seem a little uptight. Maybe they're working on this safe signal. They're very kind of uh, soft music on the on the radio and a refined dinner. Uh, and Jimmy is the exact opposite. He rolls in there, Rob. He's got a sixer of old style. Have you ever had old style? I have not. Oh, my gosh. I, I know I have, but I don't remember that I have. Let's put it that way. So uh, old style is a Wrigley Field staple. It's a Chicago staple. Uh, and Rob, he shows up bringing the old style and just kind of just being a little unrefined. And we had not we don't have the sense that Chuck and Rebecca are unrefined, but Jimmy starts to bring that out a little bit. Oh, maybe I know a lawyer joke. Yeah, I can tell one. Oh, oh, maybe it's about, Oh, it's a little, you know, it's just this great little interaction. And Chuck is just seething about this. He's yanking on his ear the whole time. It looks like Vince McMahon out there, Rob. It's pretty rough. <laughs> so let's go back to this sheet music that Chuck was playing earlier this season. And then we ended up seeing on that sheet music, uh, that it was scribbled, that it was Rebecca's sheet music. Antonio, do you have any insight into, I believe we talked about this earlier this season, in terms of the song that he's playing? Yes, it's a good callback, Rob, because the uh, the song, we saw Rebecca's name on that sheet music. The story sync indicated it was from an opera uh, it was from Sicilian. It was it was about uh, the, an, op- an opera that tells the story of a man who discovers that his wife is in love with his brother. So I don't know. Uh, we, we know that she is a classical violinist. We know that we see a lot of talk about her uh, working on different pieces and the people that are in her orchestra kind of presenting problems and the interpersonal dynamic there. So there could be no real kind of hidden thing there. This is also the Vince Gilligan kind of produced Breaking Bad universe, Rob, where sometimes there are these Easter eggs that are buried right underneath the surface and and the internet's going to find them right away. And sometimes they're buried a little deeper. So whether this means that Jimmy and Rebecca eventually have a thing mm-hmm. and that is the cause of Chuck's ultimate breakdown and that is the reason that Chuck and Jimmy are on such bad terms I don't know because I can't believe Chuck would even talk to Jimmy let alone rely on him uh, for his day to day after all of that if that's what happened but there's maybe a, we, we talked at the time when we talked about it at, at least I think that we said maybe Chuck's wife in that scenario is the law and maybe he he is feeling melancholy because Jimmy's having success in the law and that upsets Chuck because that's Chuck's thing uh, but now there is a very literal wife, not a metaphorical one, named Rebecca, whose sheet music it was. And we see she and Jimmy hitting it off. And then we know this tragic psychological twisted love story by Hitchcock exists called Rebecca. So there's a lot going on here, Rob, for sure. All right. Let's just talk this through. What is the realistic possibility? What is the percent chance that the reason why Chuck and Rebecca are no longer together are because that whether or not it was consummated or acted on, there was something between Jimmy and Rebecca. I'd say pretty low. I'd say maybe, you know, 15%. But I think... 15%. Yeah, what do you think? (sighs) Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's possible because you think that Chuck, when he had that conversation with Kim tonight and he had the big heart-to-heart, you'd think he'd lead with that. You would think that, okay, he stole $14,000 from dad's cash register, made dad really sad, and he died. You would think, 
uh, that's on the undercard, I think. Yeah, I think that that is, uh, I think that's on the undercard. You're right. But I think you open with, you know what he did? He slept with my wife. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, full stop. That's what happened. This is how, this is your guy. This is what he did. Uh, this is what a stand up duty is. Yeah. I think that that's, that's the top story for sure. You're burying the lead, Rob. If you don't feature that <laughs> 20 feet underground, jump. right? 20 feet underground, right? Too far. You bury the lead that far. Somebody's going to get exhausted trying to dig it up. But what I would say is <laughs> too soon. I, uh, too soon. Sorry. I apologize. What I would say is it is entirely possible that Jimmy's entrance back into Chuck's life when he comes back in, he's only one weekend to HHM. He talks about that. His presence is this sort of, I don't know, agent of chaos or just Joker uh, or jester that shows up maybe makes Rebecca feel like she's kind of, I, I mean, I'm thinking about the scene, Rob, and I don't know what it's like for you and we don't need to get into it, but we have a scene framed very specifically where we see them both sitting in bed, reading magazines and the lights are on and they're not very close. They're sitting very far apart. And it's just kind of an interesting way that Chuck and Rebecca are poised there. She's in her own world in some ways and he's in his own world. And it's almost symmetrical the way the shot is framed right before we get into the credits. And I, I do wonder, and I feel like Zach Brooks on the House of Cards recap here because I'm just speculating, but I do wonder that if, if that this is meant to suggest that maybe Chuck and Rebecca don't have that great of a relationship. Maybe Jimmy coming into the relationship is going to make Rebecca feel like she needs to branch out. And it's not going to be with Jimmy. It's going to be with somebody else. It's going to be some other lifestyle that she never led, and Jimmy's going to kind of push her into it. Uh, and maybe that's what it is. That's why he doesn't really assign any blame to Jimmy. That's why it's not something you lead with in a conversation like this with Kim. But that could be why it hurts just as much as those things. Because Jimmy entering into his life uh, exposed the cracks in his relationship that ultimately ended it. I think we could absolutely see that. So you feel like it's the kind of thing where Rebecca is exposed to fun Jimmy. And right. because he's such a good time guy, she's like, boy, you know, Chuck's a real stiff. And I don't feel like hanging out the rest of my life with him. He's too boring. He's too predictable. And that's why she ultimately leaves. Yeah. I mean, I don't want, yeah, I would say that's boiling Rebecca down to very brass tacks, but I would say I could see that way more likely than I would see Jimmy and Rebecca actually having a fling, that it would be more of one of those kind of awakening moments where it's like, I've been stuck in this boring relationship that I thought was what I wanted. And I realize now that it's not what I wanted. And what part of what made me realize that is the brother comes in and he's more lively and he's more entertaining and I don't have to kind of have these very wooden interactions with him that uh, I can be more alive and I feel more alive and that's what I want out of life not this thing with Chuck yeah and on top of that then Chuck even realizes that things went really well with Jimmy seems like Rebecca was really into the whole lawyer joke thing so he tries out his own lawyer joke yeah and it does not land Right. And I think that that is that's, that's very kind of and like I said, I don't want to spoil the movie of Rebecca too much. But this is a little bit the story of Rebecca, that the Rebecca in question in that relationship, uh, maybe things look good on the surface, but maybe they weren't always what they seemed. Um, and at the core of the story, there may have been a lot more going on. And I think that knowing the story of the movie, uh, I kind of feel like that fits perfectly with what we're talking about. So you see Chuck attempt and fail at landing the lawyer joke. That's not who he is. He's not a joker like that, even though it's Michael McKean, who is a hilarious guy and who is one of the legendary, you know, improvisational actors uh, throughout his work. But it's just not who Chuck is in the show. Michael McKean's great. He's capable of playing anything. 
and it doesn't land. You're right. It's just it's like and it's like a sad horns or a crickets noise, Rob. On top of that, the joke that Rebecca makes about the lawyer is that she says, what's the difference between lawyers and sperm? And ultimately, the punchline for the joke that she's going for is that one in three million gets to become a person that I feel like that that's kind of like a cutting joke in terms of like that somebody who's married to a lawyer too, right? Yeah. Cutting joke. Also a little bit uh, like salacious, just a little bit like, you know, like a little bit dirty, like there's a little edge to it because, mm-hmm. oh, oh my gosh, I said sperm in a joke. Like, can you believe it? You know, I'm really, I'm really sticking my neck out here. Uh, but yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. Like that is, uh, that's a, a, you know, Jimmy can come in and Chuck just thinks it's going to go horribly with Rebecca. And Rebecca's remark, oh, that went pretty well. You know, like, uh-oh, uh, not good for Chuck. Like, right. that's not who Chuck is by by any means or by any stretch. That's not who Chuck is. And it's not a good look for Chuck trying to be that when he tells that joke that doesn't land. So I do think that there's going to be a lot more going on here. I don't know, as we talked about, how much of it's going to be literal versus metaphorical. Uh, but I, I don't think this is the last we've seen of Rebecca by any stretch. Okay, then let's just talk through some of the Jimmy storyline in this episode where we end up with Jimmy who has a new BFF at the workplace named Erin, who is somebody who Jimmy is a little bit confused about what her deal is early on, but then very quickly realizes that she is a part parole officer, part babysitter, basically somebody who's just going to be watching over him from now on. Yeah, part nightmare. Uh, there's just, I, it's funny. I was looking at uh, the, you know, the the tweets about the show, and it. Just, I saw somebody tweeted like anybody who's a lawyer or a law or has worked in a law firm. Uh, this is the experience that they're used to. Like, there's errands everywhere. Female, male, it doesn't matter. Type A personalities in the big law world are rampant, and formatting and style and two spaces after a freaking period and you know the font that you use on your document and on and on and on and the the, the color system on the tabs rob this is why i'm not cut out for this kind of work at, at, at its core like i it is so far from my being and i'm not mocking people who are this way please don't take any offense anyone who's listening but aaron's in the law world this is a very common character for sure so just to drill down, you're saying that the errands in the law world, somebody who is uh, just like really anal about how reports should be typed up or somebody who is literally like a babysitter for people that are more likely to uh, be unpredictable. Well, I haven't seen the babysitter relationship as much, I will say. But I find that the people who are so rigid type A, they they don't respond well to having things operate differently. I can imagine that a Jimmy McGill in that person's world would be a walking nightmare. Like having that kind of person uh, who not only is he throwing pop cans away, Rob, and, and, and just kind of doing bad things like that, uh, but he's formatting his brief wrong. He's using these words incorrectly or he's using them too many times. I and mean, she's finding fault with literally millions of things that he's doing. And that's a very common thing for lawyers. So that relationship babysitter, no, but having a lawyer tell another lawyer, especially someone who is, uh, who is working for them or who's one of their subjects, if you will, uh, to, to change a million things about like change 98% of what you did. Uh, your arguments theoretically are good, but everything about how you wrote them or expressed them are, is wrong. Uh, then uh, that's very common, very common and very annoying to me. 
So we saw Jimmy in trying to save Kim in this episode that he ends up going to see her. Uh, She's working late uh, in the whole uh, document review department and he has this whole plan that's going to save her and she really shuts it down. She says, you don't save me. I save me. But we see him as somebody he's willing to quit this job and she sort of calls him out on like, oh yeah, that's a real noble gesture that you're going to give up on this job that you've been trying to quit ever since you got it. And I thought it was pretty interesting how we spent a lot of time back in the site of the first couple episodes at the courthouse where Jimmy was able just to see how far he's come in basically a season and a half of this show. And it still doesn't seem like even to go back to square one, he doesn't seem to appreciate where he is. Yeah, uh, and I, I I think you're talking specifically, really, about the scene he has with the petty with the prior DA Bill. in the bathroom. Yeah, Bill, uh, with the vomit on his collar and with the scumbags that he has to take care of who robbed the library <laughs> or all these horrible things that are the very kind of run-of-the-mill life of a prosecutor. Uh, Jimmy's, you know, oh, hey, buddy, let's uh, let's talk shop. Let's, you know, whatever. And the guy's just so jealous of him. That guy would kill his mom <laughs> for a fireplace or a window. So this Either guy, one. yeah, is a stand up dude, this guy. Uh, but yeah, this is, you know, this is not, this guy's so jealous of what Jimmy's got. And you're right. Jimmy doesn't even really value it or really appreciate it. And he's willing to kind of dance all over it. And he is willing to give it up at a moment's notice because I'm not sure he really ever wanted it to begin with that. Uh, I don't know. There's a lot of talk about, you know, people who don't want to follow rules or don't like being bossed around or want to work for themselves in this episode. Um, Jimmy's dad wanted to be his own boss. That was his dream. He wanted to be his own boss. And I got to feel like that's more Jimmy than it is anything. Jimmy doesn't really like working in a system where people tell him what to do, whether it's formatting his briefs a certain way or whether it's writing a commercial a certain way. That's not Jimmy's ideal scenario. He's much more like his dad in this regard, that Jimmy prefers to be his own boss and not operate by someone else's set of rules. So I think that, yeah, I think that it's it's clear in that scene that he does re- he does not value what he has, even though someone else is super jealous of it. We also saw him back with, what is the official title of that woman that he brings the beanie baby to? I think she's just like, a, she's like a clerk. Clerk? Uh, you know, yeah, she's probably a court clerk. And yeah. Jimmy knows exactly what buttons to push. She has a, a bunch of Beanie Babies on her filing cabinet. Her face lights up when he goes to give it to her. She's all excited. But then Aaron shuts him down, says he cannot give Beanie Babies to the clerk. Yeah, this is a, a, a rules violation, Rob. Oh, my gosh, it's bribery, Rob. You can't do this, Rob. Like, uh, even though she's got a whole line of him back there, and even though Jimmy knows how to grease the wheels, and even though he's already asked for permission ahead of time in this instance to handle it himself, uh, Aaron goes off. I mean, I understand, again, you understand why people follow these rules. It's not, it's, it is a slippery slope, and it could be a bad deal for Jimmy. But uh, again, this scene, he's just getting told not to do a certain thing that he knows will work, and he really wants to do. Yeah. Is that it for Jimmy that he just knows that something will work and he doesn't care about the rules? Is that just that he wants to just whatever, forget the proper channels. He's going to just do things that work. What do you think? I mean, do you think that there, a lot of people talk about the art of the con and, and the biggest kind of pleasure out of it is knowing that you got one over on somebody, uh, knowing that you knew how to grease the wheels and you got it done or knowing that you were able to trick somebody. I don't know where Jimmy really falls on that continuum. I don't know that Jimmy gets true glee out of making other people uh, kind of 
uh, tricking other people. I don't think that that's where his bread is buttered. Uh, but is that is that your read on it, that, that he really enjoys kind of uh, making the fool out of people? I don't think that he necessarily enjoys making a fool out of a person, but he definitely enjoys the con, the actual act of like doing the thing in the unconventional way. I don't think he ultimately cares whether or not he's able to book the appointment, whether it's tomorrow or Thursday, the 14th next month. I think that for him, it's just all about being able to, you know, run one of these scams on somebody. Yeah. And I, I guess I don't think that his reason for running the scam is because he enjoys scamming because somebody gets hurt or victimized. I think he enjoys the, the way it makes him feel alive, the adrenaline, the art of the scam, the kind of like, let's see how far I can push this. Let's see what I can get. Uh, let's see. Let, let me put me on my feet and ask me to improvise and let's see where this goes. I think that's the part that he enjoys more than anything. And I think it's interesting because in Better Call Saul, we see this as Jimmy McGill. We know as Saul Goodman, when when things get a little hot and when things get a little too intense, he wa- he doesn't want it as much, right? So uh, without getting too much into the story of Breaking Bad, there are a couple of things where things are just too much for, for Saul because that isn't really what his ultimate goal is. His ultimate goal isn't to win everything like Walter White's. His goal is simply to use his guile and wits and to use his God-given talents as a as a scammer, as a conner, uh, to try to, you know, to try to get what other normal people get through hard work uh, or through following the rules. Jimmy can get it the other way, uh, which is, you know, cutting some corners, taking some shortcuts and feeling good about himself. I want to talk about Kim's story in this episode. And I was hoping that you could sort of uh, set up what Kim is doing. We saw her with all these different post-its on the window. And we I think we saw basically two different montages of her on the phone making all these phone calls. I thought that she was calling other law offices to potentially get a different job. Ultimately, uh, we see that she is calling up this bank, uh, the Mesa Verde, and they end up coming in and having a meeting and they end up bringing in what a, uh, a quarter of a billion dollars in billings quarter of a million. I think million. She'd be out of the doghouse if it was a quarter of a billion. Yeah. 225,000. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I think she's just trying to make it rain ultimately. Like she wants to be a rainmaker. That is one way that you really move up in the big law world. Uh, as you bring clients in, you make it rain and you usually do that through relationships you do build with other lawyers. That's that's the main way to do it. Uh, other business people as well, but you network at conferences, you say like where do you work? I'm in-house counsel at this uh, at this, you know, pharmaceutical corporation. Oh, well, I'm, you know, I work at a large law firm. So if you ever get a case that's too big for your pharmaceutical corporation, you need to hire litigation counsel. Give me a call, you know, and you network that way. And sometimes you do that with your law school classmates. I think we heard her calling a couple of old law school classmates. Sometimes you do that with random people that you meet at conferences, but she's absolutely working people that she's networked with and trying to find a whale that she can bring HHM with the idea that bringing in more business will get her out of that hole that she's in and will move her up the career path. Because I got to tell you, when you're when you're a few years into your your practice, when you're four or five years in, that's when your partner track, if you're working at a big law firm, really needs to be taking off. If you're four or five years in and you're doing document review at a large firm, that's not a good sign for your future at the firm. That really isn't. You should be knowing by then what your internal prospects are moving up. And if you haven't been assigned a client or if you're not a junior or senior associate, if you're not you know, working your way up on a client or a big matter and you're just doing doc review, that's not a good sign at all. And this isn't a good sign for Kim. 
professionally for her to be in that room with younger lawyers who think that she's their supervisor because she's got more experience and doing that. Rob, I can't tell you how many podcasts I crushed when I was doing doc review. If this was the <laughs> podcast era, she might be listening to us while she's sitting there at that table. See, I uh, would love it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would say that would be the perfect job for me. I could just sit and listen to podcasts. Would you love it as much if you went to law school thinking you were going to make, oh, let's say $200,000. Yeah. yeah. And then you're getting paid 20 to $25 an hour to do this. It's mm. not as good of a proposition uh, when that all plays out. And that's really a reality of the legal industry right now. Uh, and that, you know, it's unfortunate for, for a lot of lawyers finding themselves in this position uh, because there aren't as many Kims out there anymore. There just aren't people at firms. There aren't as many jobs. So many more people are doing these jobs temporarily. And in my last job, that's the sort of work I was managing, setting up, securing for the clients, uh, and on and on and on. So I'm very familiar with the horrors of that, those kind of darkened rooms and the way that that all plays out. And she's doing the right thing by trying to make it rain and bringing in more business because that should get her out of that role. But man, Hamlin smacks her right back down, doesn't he? Yeah. And she feels like, okay, well, I'm good now, right? Should I start making phone calls? He's like, ah, oh, no, I'm going to have somebody else uh, do that. You're good. And uh, really, they end up cutting to like the super wide shot of her. It's like the uh, flag was waving and uh, she seemed uh, all alone at HHM. Yeah. And I mean, I, I thought that she I thought this would have been it for her for sure, because when she kind of screwed up the Kettleman case or when it was perceived that she screwed up the Kettleman case because the Kettleman's wouldn't take the deal that Kim worked really hard to get them. Howard stuck her on doc review. He did the exact same thing. He stuck her down in the in the kind of in the hole and didn't do anything. And then when she got the Kettleman's to come in from the cold, really, by the way, because Jimmy did, Jimmy brought them back to her. Then Howard was like, come bask in the glory, you know, be at the press conference. Like this is a win for you. And then she was back in everyone's good graces. So that didn't happen this time. Uh, and it wasn't, I don't think it wasn't because Jimmy didn't help. It's just because Hamlin's taking a little bit of a different tactic here. And maybe Chuck is going to, what did he say? Put some oil on some troubled waters. Is that how you calm troubled waters, Rob? You throw oil on top of them? I feel like that oil is the last thing you should put in the water. Yeah, I feel like Chuck is mixing metaphors, but maybe he should represent BP. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> now, we also had that long scene with Chuck and Kim in the episode where Chuck ends up coming clean to Kim about the real reason why he doesn't like Jimmy. And he says this whole big story about going back to Cicero, uh, New York. That's upstate New York, right? Yeah, close enough, right? Yeah, close enough. Cicero, yeah. Illinois, you know, upstate New York, we're all in the same place. We end up hearing from Chuck the whole saga back to uh, Dad's store back in Cicero and how he loved Jimmy and Jimmy was basically stealing $14,000 out of the cash register, which ultimately caused the store to go under. And, you know, Chuck comments about how nobody cried harder than Jimmy at Dad's funeral. Jimmy's not a bad guy, but he just he can't help himself. Yeah, and everybody else has to clean up the mess that he leaves. Did you feel like something was missing from that story? Are you taking Chuck at his word that Jimmy just took $14,000 out of the till over a period of years? Or, or are we missing something? I, I already said earlier that Chuck is not being a true bro to Jimmy in this scene whatsoever. He's like an anti-wingman. I don't know what that would be called, an anti-wingman, maybe like a leg man or a thigh man. <laughs> That's you know, different. Like, yeah, that is a different thing. I apologize. I apologize. I apologize. Yeah, I don't know. Anti-wingman, though. Like, he's clipping the wings right away. Like, this is, he's really trying to tank Kim's relationship with Jimmy. But I got to say, Rob, I'm not sure that he's being honest. Do you really feel like we're getting the whole story there? Well, what do you think is more to the story? 
Well, that maybe Jimmy didn't take $14,000 from his dad, that maybe there was some other, you know, there was an accounting mistake or that it, I don't know how Chuck proved it was Jimmy. He just tells Kim that it was Jimmy. I, I mean, I, I got to say, show me the proof, Chuck. Like, show your work. Let's see your numbers. Let's see, let's see your work. Let's see you prove that it was actually Jimmy who took 14K over time. Maybe there was a lot of shoplifting. Maybe there was a, a big mistake in one thing. Like, maybe Chuck is sure that it was Jimmy, but he never really says how he knows it was Jimmy. And I, I almost feel like his goal in this conversation is to make Jimmy look bad, but in a way that Kim will accept instead of just saying, Chuck, you're a liar. And that's why he pays him the sort of backhanded compliment. Uh, and I, I just feel like we're missing something there. I can't believe that that story is absolutely true. But what would be Chuck's goal to lie just to sort of poison the well with Kim so that she knows ultimately that Jimmy is a bad guy? I mean, she's already out on Jimmy. She's already not talking to him. She's already pissed at him. Yeah, he wants to put some oil on those troubled waters. He wants to, uh, like I said, he wants to be an anti-wingman. Like he really wants to just sabotage. She's already out, but this is like, Let's make sure like the horse is out of the barn, but let's burn the barn down to make sure it doesn't get back. Like, I really think that that's Chuck's tactic here, because let's put it another way. Like, we've seen Jimmy do a lot of things. We've seen even just Jimmy. Let's not even get into Saul Goodman, but we've seen Jimmy kind of want to stage a felony uh, to get a client in the very first episode of the series. Uh, we've seen Jimmy take but give back money from the Kettleman's. Uh, we've seen Jimmy run capers that way. We've seen Jimmy kind of bend the rules a little bit here and there uh, in terms of his practice. We we know that he's done that. He's impersonated other people. He's solicited things. But has he ever done, done something as like wrong as stealing a bunch of money from a direct family member from one of his most trusted bonds? I just I don't think we've seen that level of depravity from Jimmy whatsoever. So See, I don't think it was that bad. I just feel <laughs> like that. Oh, I mean, $14,000 over a, I mean, how long was it? I mean, is he just taking $100 out of the cash register, you know, every other week? How long would yeah. that take? Well, every other week's 26 weeks. So that'd be $2,600 a year. So that would take about, what, six and a half years, six years? Yeah, maybe, maybe it's every week. Years. Maybe it's every week. Yeah. So that would take him Three a years? couple years. Yeah. yeah. And that's, I guess it's possible. But I, I don't know. It just doesn't seem very likely. I, I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I it just Boy, doesn't seem like you're the like kind of Kim. Thing. You're like ready to just uh, get back in, uh, you know, relationship with Jimmy. Well, this is a guy who gave I don't know what, like how many, like tens of thousands of dollars directly back uh, to get. Maybe that's because he was trying to be good. And maybe it's because he has regret from what he did to his dad. I just don't know. 14K, man, that's pretty rough from a family business. And that causes the family business to go under. Did you read that, that Chuck said Jimmy cried harder than anyone else? Did you read that to mean that Jimmy felt like he caused his father's death because yeah. of the theft? Um, no, I don't think that Jimmy necessarily put two and two together. I don't think that he thought that, hey, I, it's because I stole the money. I think it's like, oh, now, you know, daddy's gone. Like, I love, you know, I, I just don't think that he's thinking about like, I love my dad, so I shouldn't steal his money. I think it's just like, well, the money was there, so I took it. But dad, now daddy's gone. Yeah. And maybe Jimmy saw it as their money. Like it's our family business. I'm working at the store. I earned this money. I'm just going to take a little bit off the top. I suppose I could see it, but I don't know, man. It just seems like a, a pretty big crime to be robbing from your family business for that much money. Um, I, it just doesn't seem like something Jimmy would do, but you know, especially not when he could run cons. Like we don't know 
we haven't seen Jimmy that far back. And God knows, Rob, if they try to play scenes with young Jimmy working in his father's store, they better cast a different actor because Bob, they can't make a wig good enough to get Bob Odenkirk looking like he's a, you know, just one year out of college or one year into college. It's not going to work. Yeah. Yeah. But, but we saw Jimmy when he needed money, when he needed beer money, when he was running his cons with Marco, like that's what they were doing. And that was enough to make a hundred dollars here or there. And they had a lot of fun doing it. That was how he paid for weed and beer. So I don't know what else Jimmy's doing if he's if he's running the till, like if he's trying to be straight and he's just taking I mean, that's the kind of thing a drug addict does, Rob. And I just I don't see Jimmy as as that kind of guy that early on. But Chuck certainly does. And I don't know. I think there's more to the story. I really do. OK, I feel like that I'm taking Chuck's story at face value just because I don't know necessarily why he would need to embellish anything. I feel like there's so many Jimmy stories that he could potentially tell of like things that Jimmy actually did. I mean, he could tell the Chicago sunroof story. I mean, I don't know if Kim knows that. So I feel like there's a lot of things that, you know, it seems like this sounded legit to me. But uh, obviously, we're only halfway through this season, so we'll see what else is out there. All right, let's let's have our dessert. Let's talk about the Hector Salamanca story, which we barely dug into here in this podcast. Oh, and I thought we we're gonna I thought we we're gonna have some squat cobbler. Yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> different no, no. dessert, different dessert. <laughs> no, 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 no. I got okay, it. so he shows up at the diner uh, with Mike. Now, did you know instantly who that was? Well, I mean, when you mean instantly, when we saw his face or when before we saw his face? When we were seeing him from the back, I was starting to say, hmm, like I thought it might be him. Yeah, I, I, I didn't. And I didn't have that inkling until I, as soon as I saw his face, I was like, oh, snap. Like, that's absolutely Hector Salamanca, like Tio, uh, you know, Salamanca, Uncle Salamanca. That's him in the flesh talking in English, not in Spanish. Now, this is great. And talking. Mark, Mark, and talking. Yeah, we only saw him talk in the flashback. With the uh, with the cousins, with the brothers, uh, with that horrible scene with the cooler uh, and telling them, you know, holding the head under the water and all of that and breaking yeah. bad. That was in Spanish. This is talking in English and really not playing it mean at all. I love this Hector Salamanca. I want more. Yeah. And so he ultimately tells Mike, hey, I think this will be good for Tuco to go to jail. He'll go for a little while, but he, he doesn't need to go there for eight years, go for 10 years. So what I was thinking was that you should tell the police that was your gun. Yeah. Oh, this is again. We talked about this last week. Why Mike's plan wasn't a great plan, because here we are. Mike is fully embroiled at this point. Damned if he does and damned if he doesn't. If he tells Nacho no or if he just kills Tuco, maybe he can get away with it. But no, he's got to put himself right in the middle of this where he is going to make a statement to the police and his statement to the police is going to make or break the case. But then if he changes it, then maybe he's going to catch a charge. And if he doesn't change it, then maybe Hector Salamanca is upset with him. And then what happens? The look on Mike's face at the end of that scene says it all. Like, oh, man, I really stepped in it. Like, this is a bad deal. Uh, I don't know what I did wrong or I should have known that this was going to happen. But we talked about this last week. Mike's plan, not an A-plus plan. And we're seeing why right now. Now, I thought it was interesting that Hector did not threaten him. He didn't even imply of what was going to happen to him if he did not take the offer. Uh, did you feel like that's just that threat was sufficiently implied by the fact that he found where Mike was? He knew that he was a former police officer. Did you feel like that that was menacing enough? Oh, yeah. Message sent. Message received. Loud and clear. Absolutely. Uh, Mike knew it was coming because, you know, I love the line delivery. I really love it. Jonathan Banks is so great because when he apo- when, when, when Tio comes in and apologizes, Mike's like, apology accepted. 
Like, you know, and like, I know you're going to say something else. So go ahead and say it like what's next. And then, you know, it comes out with this. Oh, please. You know, he doesn't need to serve eight. Maybe he only does this and you do that. Oh, and you'll get $5,000 by the way. And then he walks away and Mike is like, oh man, I'm screwed. Like, what am I supposed to do? I think the threat was absolutely, there was enough teeth in that by saying, you're an ex-cop. I found you here. What do you think that means? What I know about you? And you got to keep in mind, Kaylee is the sort of like, she's the kind of magic issue there where it's like Kaylee's hanging around out there. And if people want to know how to press, press Mike's buttons, that's the one they need to press. And so if they can find out where he eats and works and sleeps, and if they can find out, you know, that he was an ex-cop and get that background on him, how long before they find out about Kaylee and then how long before she's truly in danger. And I think that's what Mike's thinking about when, when Hector leaves. Okay. Now, hypothetically, let's say Mike decides to do this. Well, what's the reaction from Nacho? I mean that obviously Hector did not talk with Nacho about this. And obviously Hector doesn't know that Nacho already paid $25,000 to Mike. I mean, can Mike double dip here? That's a really good question. I think you're writing the next episode as we speak, Rob. I really think that that, that chicken's going to come home to roost for sure. We've seen Nacho be very pragmatic throughout the course of this series, but we've also seen him be reckless. And so I don't think this is a good look for Mike uh, to have to kind of backslide on Nacho. And I got to say, it's a direct result of Mike's own plan that he asked Nacho to follow. Nacho wanted Tuco to be killed. End of end of problem. You know, Tuco's not going to come back. Tuco's gone. You don't have to deal with anything. You know, as long as you escape and as long as no one knows who you were, you're fine. And I'm not going to dime you out because guess what? Then it looks like then it's obvious I set it up. So kill him. And Mike doesn't do it. So this is the consequence of Mike's plan. That's not going to make Nacho happy. I don't think. Do you? I don't think so. So No. No. Tell me that $5,000 to do what Hector is asking. Is that a good deal at all even? It doesn't seem like it to me. Does it to you? It seems like to me that's how much a lawyer would cost. Although he can get Jimmy for free. So maybe we're in good shape there. But I don't know. I don't know why Hector just thinks Mike can say I'm an ex-cop and get away with this, uh, especially if they're changing his story. I I really don't know um, why Hector thinks that's all going to go very smoothly. Keep in mind, the locals already know a little bit about how some people came in wanting to talk to Mike from afar, uh, and they didn't get anything out of it. But Mike is not an unknown person to the local PD at this point. Um, yeah. they, I think it's known. I couldn't tell from Mike's reaction whether he was considering this at all or if he felt like, okay, hey, $5,000 just fell into my lap. Plus, we saw the scene uh, with his daughter-in-law and Kaylee at the hotel, and he was like, oh, go out to eat. Come on. Come on. So you know that Mike is in need of this money as well. Yeah, uh, we do know that. However, I read his reaction as being angry, like, oh, man, this sucks. Like, I I don't think he was pleased that 5K fell into his lap. I think he was concerned about how the 5K that was going to fall into his lap was going to come with a much higher price tag of getting a lot more embroiled with a bunch of people that he didn't want to be embroiled with. So uh, I think that that's a, a great concern for Mike, for sure. So where do you think Mike goes from here? I mean, he's going to have to, he, he's going to have to give an answer to, to Salamanca, uh, whether or not he tries to play a different kind of game with this. I don't know. Uh, I could see that happening, but uh, he's going to have to kind of step up and say like, Hey, uh, I'm, you know, I'm going to change my story or I'm not going to change my story or I'll take your offer. Maybe he negotiates a little, but he's going to have to make that good with Nacho. Maybe the money he gets from this deal is going to go right to Nacho. And that's really kind of an unfortunate circumstance for Mike, for sure. 
Okay. In terms of Mike with Stacy, how long do you think she's going to be staying at the hotel? That's a really good question. And I, I don't know. It brings up a greater question that Ian Rice had emailed in to ask us. And I, I'll just jump in with that right now. Ian said, hey, Robin Antonio, I think you guys might be missing something with Mike and Stacy. She's not just lying to get him to move to another place. She's flat out blackmailing him. He knows she cannot just keep Kaylee from him, but she can call the cops in Philly and turn him in. He's pretending he doesn't know she's lying to keep the peace, but make no mistake about it. He knows he has no choice but to do what she says. What do you think? Hmm. I don't. I never got that she's blackmailing him. I understand emotional blackmail of uh, that if she decides to go off somewhere else, that she could just make sure that Mike doesn't ever see his granddaughter, which is basically the only link that he has left to his son, who's not there. But I never thought that she's threatening to call the police on him. Did you get that? I haven't gotten it yet. We talked a little bit about this on the podcast when we talked about how the actress that plays Stacey, Carrie Condon, uh, played a, a good role in HBO's Rome, was also in HBO's short-lived series Luck. Uh, and so this is not just a, a nothing actress. This is an actress who has been on you know some big dramas uh, for HBO. And so she's going to have a role to play that isn't just this one-dimensional kind of uh, help me protect my daughter. Uh, so there's probably something duplicitous going on, whether it's outright blackmail or not. I don't think the show has sold out to uh, to say that that's the case. But I think the door is open. Uh, I, I there, it's a little more unspoken between, I think, Stacy and Mike, exactly what Mike did um, there. They're, the conversation that they have about the nature of that and about what Mike did as a cop and what he did to get there. It, it's a little more subtle and not you know, nothing is ever spelled out. 100% directly. And and I think that what Stacy knows, what she thinks she knows, that hasn't been made abundantly clear. So I don't think we've seen that yet to think that she's definitely threatening him to call the cops. But I can see where that's a possibility. I'm just not sure that that context is fully there yet to to flesh that out. Okay. Let's keep going with some more questions. What else you got, Antonio? Well, I thought that was a really good one because it asked about, you know, the relationship between Mike and Stacy, but this is uh, this is a, a less good one. Uh, this references it's not it's a good question, but it's a little let, let's say lighthearted. References the the favorite word in the Walking Dead uh, SoundCloud, if you will, word cloud. Uh, Laura Maria Olson wanted to know Chuck makes me ill. Can we call him a douche now, Rob? Can we call Chuck a douche now? Uh, you can call Chuck a douche. Uh, do you think that Chuck is a douche? I mean, you, I'm on I'm on record as wanting to name our uh, our podcast F Chuck. So yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not on Team Chuck. And I, honestly, I felt a little bad for him at the beginning scene, at the the dinner scene, because he was trying so hard when he got into bed. Like, let me tell you a lawyer joke. Oh, I'll try this. You know, so out of character for him, tugging at his ear all the while. But that I, I really, you know, I just ranted for like five minutes about the 14K. Like, I'm not all on board with that for Chuck, and he's an anti-wingman. He's not being a very uh, a very good a, dude for Jimmy in that scene. How about a ground man? A ground man? Yeah. A, a, a wheel man, maybe? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is not good. So, I don't know. I'm not ready to go full douche yet, but um, Laura says Chuck makes her ill. I hope, Laura, that it's not one of those kind of sensitive to electromagnetic kind of illnesses. Those are hard to get over, I hear. But... Can't you sort of see things from uh, Chuck's perspective just a little bit in terms of, you know, all of us out there that have siblings, you know, and not to the degree in which Jimmy and Chuck 
get into it in this show. But you sort of have like irrational arguments, even as adults, I feel like with siblings, like, you know, you could have a brother or sister who as, even as an adult, they do something to you. And all of a sudden you're back to being just like a little kid in terms of bickering with them. Can you just uh, cut Chuck some slack in terms of he has no tolerance whatsoever for Jimmy? He's been dealing with a lifetime of Jimmy's nonsense. and He's just had it with him. Yeah, I suppose you can you can cut him some slack, but I guess we haven't really seen a lifetime of Jimmy's nonsense, at least not from Jimmy's point of view. We've seen we've heard a lot from Chuck's point of view, and I think that's classic kind of indirect characterization, like what other characters are saying about a character. And that is always going to be read through a biased lens. And you're saying, let's read it through Chuck's eyes and see it how Chuck saw it. But I'm not sure we can really know how Chuck saw it. We're only hearing Chuck say how it made him feel. Uh, and maybe that's well, you know, well grounded. And everything Chuck has said is he's not ever cut Jimmy a break. And he's being nice by saying he's got a good heart. But maybe there's a lot more to it. And that the you know, the, the rift between the brothers runs deeper and maybe Chuck is kind of saying things through a lens that even Chuck doesn't realize he's using. I don't know. Like, look, the Chicago sunroof thing and Chuck getting his brother out of trouble there. I don't know, Rob. My brother's gotten in some pretty bad trouble. Uh, and if he got and went out and did a Chicago sunroof, he's still my brother. So I'm not sure I'd be running him down to his potential love interests for sure. You wouldn't blow up his spot. I wouldn't blow up his spot. I wouldn't be a ground man. <laughs> I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't be the wheel man. You know? That being said, we don't know what happened with Rebecca yet. So we I'm don't. just saying maybe there's more to this story that we don't quite know. So I'm not fully ready to say Chuck is a douche. Jimmy's a good guy. Why is Chuck being like this to Jimmy? I, I think that there are going to be parts to this story that we just do not know yet. And we don't know what we don't know yet. So I am uh, going to say that I am going to say I, I Chuck is not guilty yet in my mind of being we a full were, douche. Yeah, if we were doing the story sync, you would have voted not guilty. You were not guilty this episode. Yes. I, no, story sync would have been uh, Chuck told Kim about Jimmy's past. Was it tactically right, but morally right? Or <laughs> tactically right, but immoral? Or tactically wrong, but moral? Or uh, whatever the other one would be. <laughs> that's like, that's, that's the yeah. worst part of Walking Dead Story Sync or Better Call Saul Story Sync. The, uh, the, the grid of uh, how tactically and morally correct any given decision is. Yeah, and I guess to keep in mind, the other thing is like, you're right 100% that we haven't seen everything. And this is a show that has already exhibited the ability to have us do 180s on characters. And for that, I present Howard Hamlin, who we hated throughout the course of season one, but who by the end of season one, the Charlie Hustle was not seen as a dig. It was seen as a compliment. Uh, we saw that again at the beginning of season two. He's sticking his neck out, getting Jimmy the job at Davis in Maine doing that as a favor to Kim. And now we see him being a douche again. Uh, and so, yeah, we can turn and pivot on these characters on a dime in this show. And I think the show is doing a really good job of presenting characters who are, who are not just one dimensional douches, Rob, who have multiple dimensions to them. This is why it's a well-written show and not a show that just introduces somebody who has one dimension as a character who comes in with one thing and is gone in an episode. Uh, we're seeing various shades of Chuck. Fifty Shades of Chuck. We're seeing it happen, uh, and and I think that not maybe 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 twenty five. Blue, yeah, Hamlin to go blue. It's definitely there. Maybe one of them is a douche, uh, and you know maybe twenty of them are a douche, but they're definitely not all douche, and there is more to the story for sure. Okay, all right, Rob Brennan Fitzpatrick wants to know how awesome would it have been if they'd gotten Catherine O'Hara 
to play Michael McKean's wife. That's actually Brendan said he stole that one from Zach Brooks. But what do you think? <laughs> Catherine O'Hara as Rebecca. I do like the rivalry. It's a very uh, Jimmy and Chuck ask the rivalry between uh, Zach Brooks and Brendan Fitzpatrick <laughs> over lines that uh, come up at their house. And then uh, who gets them into the podcast? Yeah, this is true. But the, at least Brendan's giving Zach some credit there. Yeah. Maybe it's a truce, a yeah. warming. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that would have been something. That would have been something. Maybe they could have gone mockumentary style for that episode then in the flashback. Yeah, there, there's, a, there's some good interaction uh, in Best in Show, especially between uh, Michael McKean and Catherine O'Hara, uh, whether, you know, the, the, the kind of friendly uh, rivals or not really rivals, but they both own different dogs in the dog show. Uh, and that's the kind of a great interactions, the great interactions they've got there. Uh, they have, you know, a longer history there. So I think that that would be really fun. Uh, she, you know, Catherine O'Hara is amazing. I love her and everything. So I, I'm all for getting Catherine O'Hara on Better Call Saul. And I mean, they'd love to cast comedic actors in these roles on Better Call Saul. Uh, if they could get Catherine O'Hara, that would be fantastic. Is that how the Dice Man got on vinyl? I think that's how the Dice Man got on vinyl. Either that or they they had this kind of like a bloated, like, you know, uh, receding hair kind of dummy head that they're like, we should we really need to just smash this thing. How can we do that? Well, I know what we'll do. We'll cast the Dice Man and then we'll have his head get blowed up right away. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, maybe how. But yeah, Catherine O'Hara would be great. Let's just... Let's stay with Catherine O'Hara instead of like fake Andrew Dice Clay beat up murder heads. How about that? Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, yeah, Catherine O'Hara came down with 250. Oh, Johnny DeSilvera writes in. He wants to know, do you think we will find out what happened to Rebecca before the end of the season? I think we're going to see more Rebecca before the end of the season. In terms of what happened to Rebecca, uh, I don't know. We're halfway through, Rob. Doesn't it seem like we probably should have had this story a little bit earlier in the season if by the end of it we were going to be done telling it? Mm, yes, I think that we will find out um, what will happen to Rebecca. I know it's uh, halfway through. Uh, is next week's episode called Storm? <laughs> Not that I know of. Uh, okay. Maybe it is. Maybe, maybe it is. Rebecca's an alter ego. Uh, yeah. Also, Johnny DeSevera wants to say, we've seen Tuco. We've seen Hector. Who's the next Breaking Bad character to appear? Well, uh, I don't want to get into spoilers. Uh, we can save that if you want, if you want to do the last. We, I, we can talk about the preview for next week. There's a little bit of a, a hint in the preview for next week about that. Okay. All right. A little well, bit of a hint there. Let's give the, the, the warning. Okay. Antonio is going to talk, uh, speculate about something in the preview. All right. Yeah. Yeah, so just, you know, this is in the You're preview. Warned. In the preview, what you see is you see that Mike is going to meet with uh, some other Salamancas or or, or uh, Hector, at least, or Tuco. And all you see, the last shot of the preview in AMC, the last shot is of the boots uh, with the skull on the front that were last seen on the feet of the cousins in Breaking Bad. Now, that might be a tease. That could be uh, that could be Hector. Uh, wearing those boots that he passed down uh, to uh, to those to those guys to his sons, I guess are those his sons? I can't remember. Atuko's cousins, the brothers, uh, mm -hmm. the killers that came in in season three were wearing these uh, clear boots with the skulls on the tips, uh, and that's what we see. We see the boot with the skull on the tip, uh, and so I don't. I think that those guys are probably too young. The context of this show, but I think that those you know they could be one of those guys. Okay, Antonio, what's the hashtag? <laughs> oh my gosh ground man i don't know is it either ground man or anti-wingman let's go with anti-wingman okay <laughs> there you go all right so 
Antonio, next week we'll be back with more Better Call Saul. And um, we start the back half on the back nine. Yeah, and, and and this is this is just kind of a quick question, but this is from Buddha Ben. Ben said, halfway through the season, is this where you expected us to be? If not, where did you predict we'd be at this point? Is, is everything progressing fast enough for you, Rob? Is this where you expected us to be halfway through? I mean, I think that this has been a season with uh, some some high highs. I don't know if the Jimmy story has progressed a ton, really, since the start of the season. Do you feel like it has? No, I don't think so. And I don't think we've really made a ton of progress on Jimmy as a character either this season. I think we're really slow playing a lot of that. We saw last season... Jimmy struggled a ton with the ethical concerns and he, we saw him fighting his way as a public defender and wanting to cut corners and, and, you know, trying to run capers and doing these things. We've seen him just kind of struggling uh, to adjust to life at Davis and Maine and really fighting to keep a relationship with Kim that he's also working to sabotage at every corner. But I don't think we've seen a ton of growth or evolution of Jimmy as a character. I don't think, I think we were honestly, when we left last season and Jimmy was driving away in that car, I thought we were a lot closer to Jimmy becoming Saul than we are right now. Uh, and that's, so it does feel like a step back. And I, I would have said before the season started that we'd be a lot closer to Jimmy becoming Saul than we do right now, than we are right now. Yeah, I feel like we've made a lot of progress in terms of exploring the relationship between Jimmy and Kim. And Mike has certainly had a lot of fun things to work with. But overall, yeah, I don't think that we've gotten too much closer to basically the point of the show, which is going to be that transformation from Jimmy into Saul Goodman. Yeah, the Mike stuff is great because the Mike stuff, I think, is proceeding in a logical way. Even Mike making a bad decision last week with his plan, a plan that might pull him even further into the underworld and interacting with more underworld types and might end with him owing Nacho some stuff to get Nacho to calm down uh, and might lead to more of those kind of things for Mike going forward. Um, I think that's paced correctly. I think people want that. I think it's being doled out appropriately. And I think we're making progress on that kind of arc that will end with Mike needing Jimmy. Uh, and maybe Mike, we've talked about this. Maybe Mike will be the one circling the drain who's farther along who pulls Jimmy in with him. And maybe that's what we do. And that's why Mike is a little further down the board than Jimmy is. But I, I think they're trying very hard to make the Jimmy stuff not feel like they're spinning their wheels. We are getting more Jimmy and Kim. Uh, we've obviously gotten a lot more backstory with Jimmy and Chuck and now the Rebecca. Uh, so it'll be very interesting to see where we go. From All right. We will see where we go from here next week. When we talk about episode number six of Better Call Saul season two. If you want to subscribe to the podcast, go ahead, go to postshowrecaps.com slash BCS iTunes, or you could search for post show recaps in your iTunes feed or your favorite podcatcher and listen to everything uh, we've got going, including our most shows recap, uh, which Antonio and I just checked in on OJ last week. Antonio, what's coming up this week on most shows recap? Well, it's a show that's on Sundance, and it's a limited run, but it's getting some good critical reviews. It's called Hap and Leonard. So check it out at Sundance TV. You can go online and go to their website and watch the first three episodes for free. Hap and Leonard sounds like that could be a law firm, too. It does. Hap and Leonard. Yeah, they're not, they're not hapless by any stretch. Right. Right. <laughs> dad joke. Uh, maybe, Hashtag dad joke. Maybe Kim could go uh, get a new job at Hap and Leonard. Maybe if this doesn't work out at HHM. Plus, yeah. I'm also uh, recapping all of season four of House of Cards uh, that I've done. Ten of these recaps. Three more to go. Uh, oh so that's going to be finished up this week on Post Show Recaps. 
Yeah, I Googled uh, – or no, I didn't Google. I went to Polyhop and I looked up uh, post-show re- – I looked up House of Cards recap and it was the number one hit. Yeah, uh, good, 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 good. We got a Vanity Fair story uh, coming up on us soon too. <laughs> All right, uh, Antonio, uh, great job. You can follow Antonio on Twitter. He's at AC Mizarro. I am Rob Sisternino on Twitter as well. Antonio has got two Zs and one R. And Antonio, anything else? Everyone go rock, go watch Rebecca and report back. It's like a it's like a book report. Like yeah, go watch club. Rebecca. Let us know what you think the connections are. Okay. All right, everybody, have a good one. Bye.